Chapter Six of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Six, eighteen eighty-eight to eighty-nine, Lethbridge. The commissioner had told me before I left Regina that he was trying to find some solution of the water problem at Lethbridge in order to obviate the expense of having a pair of horses and a man do nothing all the year round but fill and haul and empty the water tank, and to that end had made an arrangement with a local contractor to bore an artesian well at a spot within the barracks which he had designated. This spot was between my house and number one stable, and until I got to know the run of the prevailing winds, I used with some apprehension to watch the sparks from the gentleman's engine. The contractor had not bored more than 325 feet when, his troubles with his tools and his tubing multiplied every day, he had at length to admit that he was beaten. He had not quite reached the level of the Belly River, and his tools were not good enough to carry him any further. Then, of course, he wanted to be compensated for his loss of time, labor, and wages of his engine driver, and that opened up a quarrel with Mr. Commissioner Herchmer with which I do not propose to worry my readers. In connection with the ineffectual boring of this well, an interesting incident occurred some twelve years later. Mr. Charles A. McGrath, Dominion Topographical Surveyor, pointed out, within a mile to the north and east of Spring Coulee, a remarkable feature of the North American continent. This is a gentle swell on the prairie, accurately ascertained by survey to be only 18 inches above the general surface level. Horses drawing a wagon over it would hardly feel any tightening of the traces, and it measured no more than 299 feet across. Yet, standing on the crest of the swell, he said that it was certain that water falling to the northeast would drain eventually into a watershed falling into Hudson's Bay, and to the southeast water would drain into the Missouri River and finally reach the Gulf of Mexico. It was probably ignorance of these facts which accounted for the unsuccessful boring for an artesian well at the Lethbridge barracks. My division, in 1888, consisted of a 100 men and about 110 horses and pack ponies. We had, in addition, a blood Indian interpreter and a couple of Indian scouts. The Milk River was about 55 miles to the south of us, running eastward, and on its banks, when I took over the division, I found three camps of about five men each, with a non-commissioned officer established. Midway between the barracks and the camp at Milk River Ridge, there was another camp in a place called Kipps Coulee. It was mainly there because our loaded teams, hauling supplies to the Milk River, required a halfway house of call. Four horses could not haul a heavy load fifty miles in one day, and Kipps Coulee was the only spot where there was water. It was a pestilential spot, and no teamsters stayed there after three o'clock in the morning, for mosquitoes were a veritable pest. A coulee, I should explain, is equivalent to what in Australia is called a gully, and Kipp's coulee, so christened by an old-timer named Kipp, who had camped there, was a waterway in the prehistoric times, when Milk River was a very much bigger stream than it is today. 
In 1889, the Kipps Coulee water was not fit to drink, and the camp was not sent thither. We found, as it happened, a very excellent spring at a hill which was about 15 miles from the village, which we called the 15-mile butt. A butt is the same thing as a South African coupie. We boxed this spring and took great care of it. Although we put a good substantial cover on it, careless travellers did not always close it, and one day we found a dead fox in the water. We established a camp there instead of Kipps Coulee, and then we found that the place abounded in skunks, so much so that we had to build a little latticework fence around each tent, for if one inmate thereof had inadvertently scared one of these brutes which had inquisitively gone in, he would have created a stench that would have saturated the tent and everything in it for months. These are the gentle creatures that supply ladies with the Alaska sables, which are so becoming. They are good to wear and desirable in all ways but one. Don't get them wet, for if you do, you will find that the scent of the roses will cling to it still. The first of my detachments to obtain winter quarters was that stationed at Milk River Ridge, and good accommodation for about eight men, with a non-commissioned officer and twelve horses, was built by a local contractor in the autumn of 1889. All the other detachments had to come into barracks for the winter. At a small butt, some nine miles to the north of the ridge detachment, a patrol had the good fortune to find another excellent spring, and this settled for us the difficulty of watering our work teams when hauling supplies for the detachments. A couple of mounted men were installed in camp here, and the senior constructed three capital reservoirs with the help of stones and some lime that he asked for. The first was for drinking water for the men, the second for the horses, and the third for bathing purposes. Each reservoir overflowed into the next, and the conjunction of the whole was as clever a contrivance as ever I saw. This meant that a loaded team from the barracks would spend half a day in travelling to the first stopping place, one long day in covering the thirty-nine miles to the nine-mile butt, and from thence an easy half-day into Milk River Ridge. Everything had to be so hauled, rations, forage, coal, coal oil, and equipment of every sort. By the time I had my Milk River outpost built and supplied in 1889 for the coming winter, it meant a round trip of 230 miles to reach the furthest detachment. We had good horses, good transport, good harnesses, that much is due to Mr. Commissioner Hirchmer, and what was a still greater asset, good teamsters. We had four horse teams doing nothing but hauling supplies, and it required a capable man to put in nine or ten months of such work out of a year, driving and caring for four horses, picketing them at night, cooking for himself, etc., etc., delivering his load safely and keeping his horses fit. There was no division in the force that had such long haulage work as we did. In 1889, I was empowered to spend the sum of $1,100 in constructing three sets of detachment buildings, two on the Milk River and one on the St. Mary's River. This provided for the roofing and, so far as the money would go, sheeting of the buildings. They themselves were composed of logs from 12 to 18 inches thick, but these we had first to find in convenient coolies and then cut and haul. All this work was done by the division, 
supervised by a Sergeant Keenan, who was for the time being detached from elsewhere. The establishment of permanent outposts meant that hay had to be provided for winter use, and there was no one to cut it but ourselves. This necessitated a haying party with mower, rake, rack, etc., and as the prairie dried up more and more year by year from 1888 onwards, it was a very difficult matter to find a sufficient supply. Mr. Hirchmer asked me once how many tons of hay we cut to the acre. I replied, You've got the boot on the wrong foot. You mean, how many acres do we travel over to cut a ton of hay? One year the grass was so scanty that at Writing on Stone Detachment, 25 miles east of Milk River Ridge, we were reduced to cutting and stacking some reeds which grew in a few small lakes some 10 miles distant. From the year 1889 onwards, our barrack supply of hay came from the Milk River Ridge and was hauled about 45 miles before we got it. This was invariably done by local contractors at a price per ton stacked. The first year I went to Lethbridge, I called for tenders for 300 tons of hay. The only offers I received were from 22 to $25 per ton. This price being exorbitant, I purchased the amount at $5 per ton at Pincher's Creek, 60 miles west of Lethbridge. The haulage by I.G. Baker and Company brought the price to $22 per ton. As a consequence, no further cornering for hay was attempted at Lethbridge. Before I leave the subject of detachments, including one which I established at the junction of the Little Bow and Belly Rivers, about 20 miles northeast of our barracks, I should not omit to mention an historic old place where I quartered a couple of mounted men and which has now passed into oblivion. It was known as Fort Whoopup, a characteristic name, and was the principal stronghold of the whiskey smugglers, whom in 1874 the mounted police were sent to suppress. With a strong palisade all around it, and substantially built of stout logs, it withstood in the early days many an attack by Indians who had become maddened by firewater. It may interest my readers to know that the price of the Winchester rifle in those days was determined by the length of the weapon. The butt was placed on the ground and became the property of the purchaser when he had piled up on the floor sufficient skins laid out flat to reach the height of the muzzle. In my day, the fort had fallen into bad repair. A good deal of the material had been used for firewood, and the property had passed into the hands of one Dave Acres one of the old-time smugglers who made a precarious living by illicit means and by growing a little honest produce. His holding was situated in the river bottom of the St. Mary's, where the soil was fairly good and moist, and he used to grow the best cabbages in those parts by utilizing the numerous empty tin cans to be found in the neighborhood. He would melt the bottom off these at his leisure in the winter time, and when he set out his plants he would protect each by pressing a can rounded into the soil to the depths of something less than an inch. This would keep the winds and the cutworms away from his young cabbages, and when they wanted water, he used to fill up the cans by hand. This ensured the water sinking down to the roots, where it would do most good. I adopted this plan myself, until I found that a paper cone round the stem answered the same purpose, and did not look quite so unsightly.
For a monthly consideration, Dave Akers was able to give us accommodation for a couple of men and horses, and they remained with him until the old place caught fire, from some unexplained reason, and the men were burnt out of their lodgings. We then bought twenty sound logs of what were left and used them for our buildings on the St. Mary's. At a dollar apiece, they were not a bad buy, sixteen to eighteen feet long and from eighteen to twenty inches through. I had my own cows, generally two in milk, and chickens and the two messes had their cows, so that we had an abundance of milk and cream in the barracks. When the coal company built their narrow-gauge railway into the thriving and picturesque town of Great Falls in Montana, we were relieved of our long southward haul of supplies, but we still had to continue our annual making of hay for the outposts. In 1896, the rainy seasons had begun again, and business advanced by leaps and bounds. Travelers from the south wondered at the beautiful green grass on our prairie, and began to think of investing in so promising a country. To all those, not a few, with whom I came in contact, who asked my advice, I made the one reply. If you are thinking of taking up a holding, do not go far away from water. Stick either to the irrigation ditch or the rivers so far as your means will allow, but do not go blindly out onto the bald-headed prairie and accept to find water, because you must bear in mind the time-honored injunction. Blessed are they who expect nothing, for verily they shall get it. In course of time, Lethbridge became incorporated and rejoiced in a mayor and councillors. We continued to police the place as of yore from an office in town, where one man was stationed, and he had a telephonic communication with the barracks, so that, as generally happened, a Hungarian or slave wedding was on the tapis, and the inevitable drunken row ensued. He could always get assistance at a few minutes' notice from the barracks. What was called the Red Light District used to cause a disturbance now and then, but, as a rule, one capable man could easily handle that and any other spasmodic trouble. It was in the year 1891 that Mr. Commissioner Herchmer communicated with this infant town and demanded that the municipality should pay the rent of $15 a month for the building occupied by the mounted police and alternatively threatened to remove the men of his force from the town. It was pointed out to him that people from all parts of the district congregated there, that it was there, so far as intoxicants were concerned, that all dealings were carried on, and that it was there that the police were able to secure information and ascertain facts in regard to breaches of the law, either actual or contemplated, and that without the facility of an office in town, the police would not be able to keep themselves informed of what was going on. The town intimated quite plainly that it was not their business to pay the rent of an office, and I reported that without such a facility I should be unable, efficiently, to police the district. This, of course, gave Herchmer the chance he was waiting for, and he promptly sent orders for my transfer to Battleford, a point about 200 miles north of the main line of the Canadian Pacific. The Lethbridge people, however, would not hear of it. They got up a numerously signed petition and sent it to the Premier. I dutifully began to pack my goods and chattels and wrote to my cousin, T.C. Patterson, 
who was postmaster at Toronto, telling him the circumstances. He wired to the Premier. Re Dean Transfer, Lethbridge to Battleford, Fox Populi, Supreme Lex. He did more. He took the next day's train to Ottawa and saw Sir John Abbott, who promised that no change should be made until after the Herchmer Commission had made its inquiries. So I unpacked my stuff again and sat tight. The name T.C. Patterson is barely known to the present generation, but it was a name to conjure with 35 years ago. He was the man who, when the Conservative Party was in its deepest depth, after the Pacific scandal, which hurled Sir John Macdonald's government from power, was entreated by the leading men of the Conservative Party to undertake the editing of the mail, the principal organ of the party published in Toronto. Pattison was nothing if not thorough, and with characteristic thoroughness he devoted his whole energy to the task before him. An old Montreal millionaire, Henry Judah by name, with whom I stayed a few days in 1882, said of him, That man can write more and write better than any man in Canada, and I have always been opposed to his giving up the paper. I replied that Pattison's point of view was that after he had written the Conservative Party into power, as had been freely remarked to me by all sorts and conditions of men since my arrival in Canada, and had possibly shortened his life, by the unstinted labour which he had given to the call of duty. He was entitled to his rest and to his reward in the haven of the Toronto Post Mastership. The old gentleman admitted all that, but thought it was a pity notwithstanding. Pattison's connection with me was this. His mother was my father's sister, and when I first went to Canada, which was at his own suggestion when the Winnipeg boom was in full blast, he said, I will do all I can for you, because I shall be so pleasing, my dear dead mother. That was the sole bond of connection between us, and he lived up to his end of the bond. This was the only time in my career that I ever invoked his aid. But as he said, you know where to find me. I have often thought that while it was Sir John Macdonald's voice that spoke, it was T.C. Pattison's brain that conceived. His brother-in-law told me that Lord Dufferin often used to ask him to go to Rideau Hall, the vice-regal residence in Ottawa, to discuss some naughty problem during the troublesome days. I am confirmed in my belief by an appreciation of T.C. Patterson, published in The News, Toronto, on September 21, 1907, just after he had passed away at the age of 71. The writer says, Inter Alia. Anyone who looks back over the files of the mail of 30 or 35 years ago will find editorial writing of unusual power and of great felicity and dignity. We have had no better editorial writing in Canada, and Mr. Pattison had the genius to preserve the unity of the page, no matter by how many hands the work was done. We cannot penetrate the secrets of that time. We know, however, the italics are mine, that it was in the mail office, that the movement for protection was organized. And if Mr. Pattison had ever told all he knew, possibly some great figures would be diminished in stature, and some considerable adjustments effected. But he did not speak, and the story must wait. Many of the prominent Englishmen of the day were his contemporaries, either at Eton or Oxford, and, to quote the aforesaid appreciation once more, 
He was in intimate touch with the Governor-General of Ottawa for a generation. Patterson it was who, in 1882, at the behest of the Canadian Pacific Syndicate, wrote a pamphlet introducing the railway to the English public and telling them that the presidency of the road was held by George Stephen, who, having begun his life as a journeyman carpenter, had worked himself up until he had become president of the Bank of Montreal. It was easy for a man like Patterson to get me enrolled as an extra clerk during the parliamentary session of 1883 in the office of the Marquis of Lorne, the Governor-General, and thither I went at a dollar and a half a day for some months. In Ottawa during that time, my late wife and I met a good many of the ministers and other prominent people in the social life of the capital. It was not easy, however, to get speech of Sir John MacDonald. Fred White, now Colonel C.M.G., retired, comptroller of the Mounted Police, had been Sir John's secretary during the dark days of the party, and was still his chief political agent. I am very much beholden to him for his keen sympathy and assistance, and he said to me one day, I want to introduce you to Sir John. I got a hurry message from him one morning and went to his office. Sir John is, by the doctor's orders, confined to his house at Earnscliffe. You know it. Take this note for Pope, private secretary, and be as quick as you can. As luck would have it, I was the only visitor at the time. Mr. Pope read the note, ushered me into Sir John's study, announced, Captain Dean, and retired, shutting the door behind him. I was not exactly a stranger to Sir John, because my wife and I had been to a dance at Earnscliffe, and Lady MacDonald had very kindly made a point of introducing me to her husband. However, I now had the opportunity of having a powwow with the old gentleman, and told him that I was seeking an inspectorship in the mounted police, and that my qualifications were so-and-so. His manner was very nice and attentive, but he was entirely non-committal, which was no more than I had expected. It seemed to me that there was something in the old man's mind to which he did not give expression, and I found out, a day or two later, what the hindrance was from, a note from Fred White, the gist of which was, Why did you leave the service? I had already explained that stagnation of promotion had driven me out of the service, but now I wrote a full explanation. In 1866, I joined the Royal Marines, a non-purchase corps, with the belief that, if my life were spared and I was not invalided or tried by court-martial, I was bound to become a general officer. In 1867, Mr. Childers, the First Lord of the Admiralty, reduced the strength of the Corps by abolishing the Woolwich Division, some 3,500 officers and men, and as a result, with no adequate provision for supernumerary officers, for four years and ten months, no single promotion took place from the lieutenant's to the captain's list. I was a subaltern of fifteen years, and at the date of my promotion to captain, I was nearly five years too old for my place in the seniority list. When I was retired from the Royal Marines in 1882, I was thirty-four years of age, and if I had continued to serve in the Corps, I was due to be compulsorily retired, if I was then still a captain, on attaining the age of forty-two, on a pension of 
225 pounds a year. As this was not enough to provide for a family, I cut the painter and went to Canada. I may add that from 1876 I was adjutant of the Chatham Division and retired with the rank of captain in 1882. That was as much as it concerned the Canadian Department to know, but I may here tell my readers how it was that I brought about an amelioration of the conditions prevailing in my old corps before I left. In the year 1881, the Lords Commissioners of the Admiralty inspected the Chatham Division of the Royal Marines, and of which corps I was the senior subaltern. I interviewed their lordships and handed them a memorial which I had drawn up. Lord Northbrook, First Lord, Lord Brassey, and Sir Cooper Key, First Sea Lord, were the principal personages, and very attentive they were. I expatiated on the points which I have previously summarized herein, and Lord Northbrook at length said, I think, Mr. Dean, we shall all be agreed that you have a grievance. Have you any remedy to suggest? I have, your lordships, I replied, and it is this. Give us the same opportunities of retirement while we are young that are open to the too big seniority corps of the army, the Royal Artillery and Engineers. Legislation to this effect was passed into law, and I was one of the first officers to take advantage of it and retire with £1,600 to the good. Having followed the drum for so long, I hated to leave it, but what could I do? Warm and well-meaning friends tried to dissuade me from my purpose, but to each one I replied, This bed is for me and mine. Shall I not have the making of it myself? My interview with Sir John MacDonald had no immediate result, and I left Ottawa at the close of the parliamentary session with the idea of going into a new railway proposition which had been suggested to me, for I could not afford to remain idle. I dropped into Patterson's office in Toronto to report progress, and he, without saying a word, wrote a short letter, which he read to me and signed TCP. He added, as he stamped the envelope with the official stamp. I think you will hear something within a week. So I did, for within that time limit I received a letter from the comptroller directing me to report myself at the headquarters of the mounted police at Regina, and enclosing with the necessary credentials a check for a hundred dollars to pay my expenses. So began my career in the mounted police, and now, after thirty-one years and nine months' service in that force, I became a pensioner of Canada from April 1st, 1915. Looking back, it hardly seems possible that I can have served upwards of 47 years, as I may say, with the colours, that is, as a regimental officer. I am curious to know how many officers there were on the active list of the Royal Navy on March 31st, 1915, who can say that they learned the handspike gun drill, which was in vogue at the time of Nelson and how many army officers there are now on the active list who bit off the end of the cartridge before ramming the powder and bullet down the muzzle of a rifle. Both handspike and ramrods were in the curriculum when I learned my drills. I trust my readers will pardon my being so extremely discursive, and that I may now be permitted to recur to the Premier of Canada, whom in 1891 T.C. Patterson interviewed on my behalf. Sir John Abbott had been formerly the legal adviser of the Canadian Pacific, 
and had been called upon to take the helm of government after the tragic death at Windsor Castle of Sir John Thompson, of whom the late Nicholas Flood Davin, the silver-tongued orator of the Western Prairie, wrote that the man who, at birth, was laid in a three-and-sixpenny cradle, and his requiem boomed by the cannon of an empire. Sir John Abbott had promised that the question of my transfer should remain in abeyance until after the Herchmer Commission. The government had, very reluctantly, and after long deliberation, consented to appoint a judge of the Supreme Court to act as a commission of inquiry into the many complaints against this officer which had been made in the press and otherwise. Mr. Justice Wetmore held sessions at Regina and MacLeod, and I was called upon to attend at both places. I said what I had to say, without fear or favour, and as a result my commissioner treated me thereafter with respect, although we had no greater affection for each other than before. One fact became apparent, and that was that sundry officers who had instigated newspaper men to publish attacks against the police commissioner lacked the moral courage to go into the witness-box and under oath to substantiate their former statements. It was a pitiable expose, but it had the effect of clearing the air. My transfer to Battleford was no longer a moot point, and the rent of the office in Lethbridge continued to be paid from police funds. End of chapter 6